Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes joining you on a Friday for our last of the Revelation Questions series. This is episode number 13, following uh, 13 lessons on Wednesday nights that you've been doing. And I know there are people that listen to this podcast, people that listen to the lessons, people that listen to both. Uh, They're really like a left and right hand that if you listen to the lesson and then you listen to this, you get a whole added almost appendix at the end of each lesson. And I know a lot of people have really appreciated that extra time from the questions you're able to do in class. Exactly. We've had great questions during class, uh, during the various sessions, but some of them, you want to spend a little bit more time on it, maybe quote a little bit more scripture. So this has been a fun way to go into a little more depth. And it's been a great way to take questions from So We Speak listeners. Absolutely. So we're here at the last part of the book. We've got three great questions today. Overall, I think now we've answered close to 40 questions on Revelation. Of course, there are a million that you could ask, but uh, we've got some big ones today. The first one is somebody who's asking, why does it say that we are judged according to our deeds? And let me add a little bit of context to this. We talked in a podcast episode last Friday about how Old Testament and New Testament, people are saved by faith. People are saved by the grace of God through faith. And then you see the end of the book of Revelation. I'm going to read from chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. This is the great white throne judgment scene. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So how do you reconcile these two things? Great question. Let me start by making a foundational observation. And this is something you probably know, but I want to remind everybody that in the system of justice in the universe, if you will, and this is one of the reasons, by the way, that I came to believe in God, is I thought that if indeed there was a God, there must be justice. And I know some people are going to have trouble with God uh, executing justice, but fundamentally, we cry out for justice. Well, what does justice mean? Justice means that every sin must be paid for. And that's just a truth. Every sin must be paid for. The balance has to be made. The penalty has to be paid. uh, However you want to think about this. But the wrath of God, as Romans said, is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of people. Why does the wrath of God lay upon uh, us? And that is because we have rebelled against God. We have sinned. I'm going to use some synonyms here, basically. So every sin has to be paid for, and someone will pay for every sin. So Now I want to move on and give you my, here's how I would explain what you just read. So everybody stands before God and books are opened and every single one of us, our sins are enumerated in the sense that we are judged by what we have done and we are all declared rebels. I said in the class, I said, if you're going to stand before God on your own, And he's going to read everything you've done. I hope you brought your checkbook with you. And that's just tongue-in-cheek way of saying, 
all of those sins must be paid for or there is no justice. Then you notice that another book is opened, and it's the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then you have a debt you cannot possibly pay. And you are you pay the penalty for those sins. If your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you will not pay for those sins because Jesus paid for your sins. And so I know that's that's maybe just a little simplistic, but that's how I read that, is why must we be judged by what we have done? Because every sin has to be judged. And how is it then that we can escape that judgment by the blood of Jesus Christ, who covers our sins, because we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? I, I kind of envision in my mind as we stand before the judge, and we indeed are declared guilty. This is Terry's view now. We are indeed, in my little mental picture, declared guilty. And Jesus says, but I paid for him. And God says, welcome into the kingdom. So let me stop there for a second and get your reaction to that. Again, that's not deep theology there, but that's how I would tend to understand that is, of course, we'll all be judged for our sins. But some of us have already had our bills paid. Mm. That's a great analogy for that. So you're essentially saying that the two books, you have the two books that are open. One of the books is a record, almost like an accounting record of the good things that we've done and the sins that we've committed. And all of us, if we if it were left to that book, would be found guilty and unworthy of being with God forever. But there's a book called the Book of Life. And if your name is written in the Book of Life, that means you've trusted in Christ. And if your name is written in that book, then it takes precedence over your sins, because now your sins have been paid for already by the blood of Jesus Christ. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's how you can say we're saved by God's grace, meaning we are guilty, or we were, and Christ imputed righteousness to us by what he did. Christ's blood covers our sins, and so he has paid the price for us. I would add one other approach to this. Here's just another way to think about it. I like the book of James because what essentially James is doing is he's connecting your deeds and your heart, your faith. I mean, we're all aware of his famous statement, you know, faith without works is dead. And so there is a sense also which you can understand why would he judge my deeds instead of my faith? Well, I can imagine James raising his hand and standing up and saying, why do you talk about those things as though they're two different things? Mm. James would say, if you look at my deeds, you see my faith. And, mm. uh, and But I do believe God knows the heart and God sees the heart and God divides deeper. And he is the only one that can judge because he does see the heart. But I do think that the, our deeds flow out of our faith or our lack thereof. So I think that's another way of thinking about why we might be judged by our deeds, not because our deeds earn our salvation. In fact, if that's what we're counting on, as I said, we're all going to have a very big debt to pay. But the deeds that you see reflect the heart. Nevertheless, I do think the Lamb's Book of Life is the key to this, and that is only those whose debt has been paid will be saved. Hmm. The second question goes along with part of the first question in, in terms of what we do and the effect it has on our eternity. Somebody asked, are there levels of reward in heaven? What do you think about that one? 
This is a great question, and it required much more time than we had in class. And so I'm going to tell you that there are two different opinions on this, and this is uh, not a salvation issue, because let me just start by saying what this person is not asking is, do your deeds get you into heaven? That is not what this questioner is asking, because there's an easy answer to that. And we all know the answer to that. Of course, they do not. What this person is asking is a very good question about which Christians have different points of view. And that is, given that you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ and you are saved by grace through your faith in Christ and what he has done, do then your deeds, your service in the vineyard of God, your work in the kingdom, do your deeds then somehow get you rewards in heaven, not entry into heaven, but some kind of reward in heaven. And so the answer to that, I'm going to give you some scriptures to consider, and then Cole will be really interested in where you may come down on this. First of all, let's start with no, that no, you're there are not different levels of reward in heaven. One example might be the parable of the talents. I'm just giving you passages that would lead you to believe this. So you have someone that has five talents, someone that has two. You know they were both faithful to use them. And at the end, they both get the exact same uh, approbation from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. I'm going to give you much. Come in. Enjoy uh, your master. And uh, so you get this sense that God requires, and this is something, by the way, that both views on this will hold true. God really is looking for our faithfulness, not the quantity of our works. This question, however, is simply saying, if we have more good deeds, if we have more work in the kingdom, are there rewards for that? Well, the parable of the talents leads many people to say no. Probably the main parable that leads Christians to think no is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. You may remember then you have some workers who start in the morning and they work through the hot sun. You get a few more that join at noon and you even get a few that join maybe an hour before quitting time. And at the end, they all line up and they all get the same pay. And the guys that have been there all day say, gosh, this isn't fair. We worked a lot longer. And the master says, is not this money mine to give? In other words, the idea that you're saved by grace, not by how long you worked in the vineyard. So you can see how that parable might lead you to think that we will all do as much as we can and we'll do whatever God has appointed to us. And heaven is our reward. So that would be the no side of that, that no, there are not different different levels or rewards in heaven. On the maybe there are side, let me give you a couple of passages. One is in Colossians, uh, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15. This is one you read and you go, maybe, what is this saying? In 1 Corinthians 3, 14, if any man's work which he has built, now this is talking about Christians who are out evangelizing, doing good deeds, working in the kingdom. If any man's work which he has built remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, meaning say you evangelize and everybody you evangelize falls away, it says you will suffer loss, but you yourself will be saved as though you had made it barely through the fire. So that kind of gives you the idea that if let's just pretend for a moment you're an evangelist and you go spread the word and a million people come to Christ. And at the end times, all million of them are faithful. 
then wow, what a great reward. And let's say you're an evangelist and you spread the word and you sow the seed, if you will, and a million people accept it, but it was seed sown on rocky soil and they do not persevere. It, so you you sort of get a hint here that that doesn't affect your salvation, but does it affect your reward? Uh, Matthew 19, Jesus says, uh, and I'll just quote you the pertinent passage. He says, because in the kingdom, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. What's he saying there? Well, he's actually talking about just because you're great here on earth doesn't mean you'll be great in the kingdom. But some people read into that that, oh, well, that mean must mean, though, that you could be great in the kingdom. And maybe there are sort of levels of reward in heaven. And so there are a number of uh, people that, that do see it this way. So I don't want you to think either of these views is, a, is an extreme outlier view. There are people who read the scriptures and are persuaded one way or another on this. So I'll stop there and just say you can see, I think you can see how there may be suggestions that there might be levels of reward in heaven. Others who would say no. The slippery slope here, though, is don't ever get your works in the kingdom. Don't ever confuse that with getting into the kingdom. And mm -hmm. anybody on either side would agree with that. So I've only listed some of it here, but are you persuaded either way, Cole? It's a very tough question. Um, I think if you start at the very end of what would your rewards be, let's let's say for the sake of argument that they that there are rewards in heaven, right? What what would those rewards be? Well, you see, Paul say at one point there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that God will give me, and so sometimes sometimes you hear people say that's another jewel in my crown uh, right. in heaven, you know. So which is almost always said tongue in cheek. But then Paul goes on to say uh, that that will be given to everyone who loves his appearing and that we will actually right. lay those down before God in heaven. So some something like that where you maybe get a reward, you come into your reward is another euphemism for going to heaven. Right. Those are those kinds of rewards aren't necessarily any more or less enjoyable or substantial than anybody else's, although they could have a degree of difference in them. But th those are the kinds of things that you get it. But but you give it back to God or, you know, it doesn't make a difference in your experience. The second thing would be, what do you think we're going to be doing in heaven? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so it's easy to imagine that we're not going to have rewards if you think that, you know, all of heaven is uh, just like a big worship service where we're all just singing right. for all eternity. You know, I could sing of your love forever over and over and over and over again. Right. Uh, I, I tend to think that heaven will be a lot like earth in the sense that we are doing things, we are uh, experiencing things, we're going on adventures and working and doing what Adam and Eve really should have been doing in the garden, but without sin and without the, without the uh, consequences of the fall. If that's the case, then it's a little bit easier to see how a reward might play out, not as better than others, but in the same way that God actually gives people different things in life now. You know, God, right. it sees fit to give people certain gifts, it says in 1 Corinthians. He obviously gives people certain places that they're born, families that they're born into. And those come with what we would call pros and cons uh, in life. But in that sense, God is not afraid of 
in that limited sense, treating different people differently in the sense that he has actually set up a very different set of circumstances you're going to find yourself in. If that's what we mean, then I mm-hmm. could probably get on board with that. A, a third way that to bring it back to the scriptures that I think is kind of interesting is in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, Jesus talks a lot about your reward in heaven. So right. he says things like, blessed are you when people insult you and revile you and say all kinds of evil things about you and be glad for your reward in heaven will be great. Right. That seems to imply that for those who are not slandered, but who are Christians, they won't have the same reward or the same degree of reward in heaven. I guess you could read that passage to say your reward will be great, i.e. it will be the same reward as everybody else. But it, but it does seem like those passages evoke a little bit of a different experience in heaven. So I'll just lay those three things out and say, I think the, that's the way I kind of come at this question is, of course, we're not talking about uh, your works earning you something. We're not talking right. about uh, getting in on the basis of works. The, the apostles, Jesus says, will reign on 12 thrones. You know, could we consider that a reward? Whereas the rest of us are going to be out in the gallery, you know, watching. I don't know. Uh, so there, right. there's what I'm trying to put my finger on here is there do seem to be that there will be differences in heaven. Maybe not better or worse, uh, reward or not reward, but there will be differences in dif- what different people are doing and experiencing in heaven. Could rewards be a part of that? If if they could, then I'd say I'm probably more for the rewards view. If it's like you know, a theme park where certain people who converted more people get the Disney fast pass and you get to go up to the front and you have to wait in line for the big rides in heaven. I I have a hard time seeing rewards like that. Somebody's got a bigger mansion than other people because they were a missionary or a martyr. I, I have a very hard time seeing that. Yeah. Well, I, I personally come down on the side that it seems likely to me there will be differences. But here's the first first thing. I have three things to say about this. But first is you have to take away our earthly ideas of ambition, meaning it's not levels. It's not a matter of I want to do more works because I want a little higher rank in heaven, or I want to walk around with a crown that has five jewels in it versus the people that have two. Nobody's looking down on anyone in heaven. So first of all, you have to take all the human emotional envy, ambition out of this and realize that, as you said, Cole, if there are differences in heaven, there are differences, not levels. I think it's likely there'll be differences in this respect. And I want to turn it around and I want to not think about uh, how many people did you convert? How many good deeds did you do? How much money did you give? Uh, Those are all good. Uh, I'm not discounting them, but let me just pitch it in this way, because to me, this makes more sense. I've I've gone on record of my opinion about what heaven is like, and it's much like yours. In the last lesson on chapters 21 and 22, I likened it to a great quest like Lord of the Rings, in the sense that we were made with curiosity, we were made for camaraderie, we were made for courage and boldness and striving. We were created in the image of God, and for heaven to be heaven, we will have a West. We will have adventures. God will give us challenges. That's when we are actually joyful. Mm. So given that, if I were, let's just say I was on a quest in heaven, 
and we're with a group of people that are truly my brothers and sisters intimately. Who do I want to be led by? Here's who I want to be led by. If the Apostle Paul is in the group, that's who I will follow that guy. Now, why will I follow him? Is he smarter than me? Maybe not. Is he better in some way? Not the point. Here's the difference. The Apostle Paul was faithful to walk a harder path than I've been asked to walk. My job is to be faithful in the path that God has asked me to walk. But I will be the first to acknowledge my brother Paul walked a harder path than I, and I would follow him for that reason. So it's not because he attained more. It's because I admire his faithfulness. And it, it, that that is the kind of way I could see us honoring one another in heaven. And so I would be perfectly happy for him to be the leader of, of my quest because I know he's faithful and he walked a very, very hard road in life. And there's a story that I like, Cole. I know you know this story, and perhaps I've even told it on here before, but you may know that John Wesley and George Whitfield uh, were just closer than brothers, divided over the issue of election. But when George Whitfield died, John Wesley preached his funeral. And afterwards, uh, a lady came up to John Wesley, knowing that they didn't agree on this issue of election and said to him, do you think that you will see Mr. Whitfield in heaven? Meaning, you know, he's one of those Calvinist guys. Are you, do you even think he'll go to heaven? And here was John Wesley's reply. He says, ma'am, I think not, because I will be so far back in the line, and Mr. Whitfield will be so close to the throne that I may not catch sight of him. I can't think of a better story to illustrate that if indeed there are different levels in heaven, that's what it will be like. Yeah, well, let me let me add another point to this that maybe clarifies the concept of reward the way I think about it. What you talked about last with Wesley and Whitfield is, is certainly what I think a reward would be like. So if you look at the way the New Testament talks about reward the afterlife, being with Christ, the the reward is getting God. And, th and that's what it makes it difficult yes. to talk about these other rewards is if the reward is God, what, what could he possibly give you as a reward that would be more enjoyable than that? But if God is the reward and we're storing up treasure in heaven, that kind of thing, then Possibly the rewards there are the same as they are here in the sense that there are people because of what they've gone through, like your example about Paul or like Whitfield and Wesley, where because of their faithfulness, because of their walk with Christ, they actually know God at a more intimate level than we do. Mm -hmm. I would certainly put Paul in that category. So if if the reward is God, then a deeper and more intimate knowledge of him when you get there is itself a greater reward. Not that we won't all experience that, but, but it may be right. kind of like Wesley said facetiously that Whitfield is closer to the throne, not spatially, but spiritually. There's a deeper mm -hmm. enjoyment. There's a deeper knowledge. There is a tighter communion with God now. And I wonder if there's an analog for that as we get to heaven, because we know that over the eternity we spend 
in heaven, we will know God more and more and more fully because he can be known forever and not be fully known. Uh, so we're all going to be on that path of knowing God more intimately. I don't think it would be unbiblical to say that some people will know will be a little further down that path of knowing him or a little further right. down the path of their uh, intimacy with him, even as we are perfected in glory. That, that may be another way of conceiving of these rewards mm -hmm. that would make biblical sense. I agree. I think it's a great question. I think the essence of the answer is to think about it a little differently, as you've pointed out. So wherever you come down on that, uh, you obviously, as you said, the reward in heaven is getting to be with God. And if indeed there are greater rewards, they will be greater in ways that are very different than we think in earthly terms. Okay, we've got one more question. I think this is the question that everyone has been wondering for the whole series. So we're going to end our Revelation Question podcast with it. I know you've covered this in your lesson last week, but for our podcast listeners or for people that wanted to go a little bit deeper into this, what is your view on the book of Revelation? Good question. First, as you know, I, I always say my goal is not for someone to agree with me on the book of Revelation. It is to dive in and appreciate the beauty of the book and what God wants to say to us out of the book. But of the different views, I am persuaded that one is more reasonable to me than the others. And so when I approach it in general, if you think about the four views of the preterist, historicist, futurist, or symbolic as to when is that tribulation going to happen, I fall on the symbolic side. And sometimes people think, well, if you think it's symbolic, that means you don't think it's true. And as we said, that's not the case. I think it's very true. I just think it's true in a particular way. You know, I'm really fond of saying, and I'm sure you're tired of hearing it, Cole, is let the scripture be what it wants to be and let it say what it wants to say. The book of Revelation wants to be apocalyptic literature. That's what it is. It is a series of images to convey to you truth. A poem can convey truth to you, but so can your cell phone agreement. And they are written very differently, but they're both conveying truths to you. Well, Revelation wants to convey truth with a series of images. And so when I say symbolic, I mean, let's take the images as images and let's look for the truths that it wants to convey. So I don't read as much timeline into it as far as preterist, it's already happened. Historicist, it's in progress. Futurist, it's going to happen in a seven-year period in the future. I read it more as this has actually been true many times in the past and will be true many times in the future. I will say this, for those of you that are futurists, which are most uh, most Americans, that are looking for chapters 4 through 19, the tribulation to be a seven-year period in the future, I don't rule that out. Because as a symbolic point of view, it would be just like God to have uh, an oppressive ruler, an antichrist, working the will of Satan to oppress God's people. That has happened many times in history, and God to be there to encourage his people to save the souls of his martyrs. In other words, everything you read in the book of Revelation, I believe has happened many times, and I believe will happen again, and it is entirely possible that there will be one final illustration of that with, quote, the Antichrist in the tribulation at the end. So I hold to a symbolic view, but I wouldn't rule out a futurist view of a seven-year as far as the millennium, then, 
is, which is pretty common for people who have a symbolic view. I take an amillennial view, meaning it's not a question of is Jesus coming back before the thousand years or after, but the thousand years is not a literal thousand years. What Revelation wants to tell you is this is the time of the reign of Christ on earth. And I would take an amillennial view, which would say that's happening. The gospel is indeed the reign of Christ on earth, and we are in a millennium, if you will. And then finally on the rapture, and this is the one that will get me into trouble, Cole, but I, since I take this symbolic and millennial, I do not believe and I'm not persuaded by the scriptural evidence that there is a separate rapture from the second coming. So the popular view, if you remember, would be that there would be a rapture of the church off the earth, then seven years of tribulation, then Jesus would come in the second coming seven years later and reign for a thousand years. But since I understand it in a more symbolic and amillennial way, I just don't find the scriptural evidence for a rapture to be compelling in many ways. And I, I'm not trying to make a polemic here against the rapture. I'm simply saying, I think the rapture and the second coming are the same thing. I may be mistaken about that, but that's my view. So that's probably the one that just crossed the line for some of our listeners. I say that tongue in cheek. Well, the interesting thing, though, is it, the the symbolic view that you take. You you're an amillennialist, but you could foresee the end of the Book of Revelation, or even after chapter four, playing yeah. out pretty much the way it is written in a series of events in the future, which would separate you from some other amillennialists. Yes. And so here's here's my biggest issue. If you said, why are you not a futurist? You know, seven-year tribulation, rapture, seven-year tribulation, Jesus comes back. I don't think that that can be the only thing that Revelation is about. So mm -hmm. as a symbolic point of view, I'm going to say that may be one of the things it is saying, but it cannot be, in my view, the only thing that it is saying. So, right. yes, I would open the door to uh, and let the futurists in my tent. Yes. But I am more of a symbolic <laughs> and amillennial view. Yes. Right. Well, that's the question I think that most people have had through the series. It's interesting, too, to go back and look at the way that you teach these different views and uh, work out the different variations that you could possibly be. I mean, there's every there's every version of each of these views combined with when you think if you believe in a rapture, that's going to happen. The tribulation with a millennium, right. I mean, it's 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 a total potpourri of different views. Uh, but I know people are always wondering as we get to the end, what is your particular view? And, you know, credence to you, most people do not guess midway through the series because you teach it so impartially. Uh, and, and you do give equal time and get in the minds of each of the views. And so I, I'd say that's one of my favorite parts of the way that you teach Revelation is it's not one of those where we get to the end. It's like, well, duh, he's been, you know, right. touting that view and diminishing all the other views this whole time. Of course, he's a symbolic person. I think some people are probably surprised. They maybe thought that you were something else as you go through the series. Yeah. 
Well, and, you know, as we both know, this is not a salvation issue. We should hold it a little bit lightly. And I may be wrong. I'm not telling you that I'm right. I may be wrong. This is just my best understanding of the scriptures. And so I want to hold that with some humility and hopefully everyone else. And all these views are orthodox. I'm not saying they're all right. I'm just simply saying they're all true to Christ. None of them are heresy, in my view. None of them are denying any biblical fundamental truth. So I do want to be an honest broker of information, if you will, and that is I'd like to teach the best of the various points of view so that you engage the scripture rather than just believing what Terry believes. Because in the end, Terry could be wrong, but the scripture never is. Exactly. Well, thanks to everybody who's ask questions and uh we're thinking about what else we want to do with our friday spot if we want to continue just taking general questions that you send in if we want to start uh something tangential to our wednesday but if you have thoughts on that go ahead and send us an email info at so we speak.com send us a direct message comments on the podcast always leave a review Uh, with your feedback. We appreciate that. And thanks for listening to this special after-party Revelation Questions series on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.